updated expression for the digital age. If you listen to the recording of a tree falling in a forest, what is the sound you're listening to? When you record that tree falling, you're copying down the waves its impact made through the air. When you play back that recording, your transmitter does its best to recreate the copy it made so that you can hear what it might have sounded like again. What you end up hearing is the copy of a copy of a sound. All this happens even before your brain has a chance to interpret the waves your ear is receiving. In other words, before recorded sound gets to you, it passes through quite a few filters, copying, recreation, and your own interpretation. That's the funny thing about filters. It's hard to know exactly what effect they have, especially when you didn't see the unfiltered side of the equation. By design, filters remove, alter, and sometimes even add. What you're hearing tonight is one such unfiltered, altered sound. When this sound was originally recorded, the gentlemen of this podcast sat down to record their voices as they have done so many times before. Only this time, as you'll hear, somewhere along the long line of filtration that brought this copy of a copy of a sound to you, something was altered. Something was added. As you interpret these perhaps altered waves that come out of your headphones or your speakers, ask yourself, when you listen to a recording, what is the sound you're listening to? Where's it really coming from, and who really made it? What happens if it changes? A question of recording to ruminate on as we tune in to the Trilog Podcast. I, I did this. Oh, okay. I mean, I didn't do anything. Oh, no. I Are we recording this? right now? Nobuhiko Obayashi. When should I start this? Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies that we saw at the Minneapolis, at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm all turned around. It is the Spooky Trilon, season. the Minneapolis Trilon. The Minneapolis Trilon There's just no Cinema other. in Minneapolis, uh, there Minnesota. A, there is another Trilon. The Minneapolis Trilon Cinema of Minnesota. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the 1977 film House, uh, a, a rendition of our um, last year episode, or one of our first episodes of this podcast, actually. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can follow me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. You can follow our Twitter or our podcast on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. My name is Cody Narvison. My tummy just made a really weird noise. I hope nobody heard that. Um, I can be found on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. My name is Harry. Uh, my... Tell me didn't make any particular noises, but I'll keep you updated uh, as needs be. Uh, I'm not anticipating any funny tummy noises, but again, um, we'll see how this goes. I'll add a sound every time that I notice sure. Cody's weird tummy <laughs> funny noises. And you can find me on Twitter at Shitaki Harry. I'm Aaron. Wow. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RB, please. Uh, Two Aaron, ways. tell us about your tummy situation. Uh, I want How's to die and wish you would not ask me that. <laughs> Is it that painful? It's, that doing, bad, it's huh? personal. It's it's personal. Po- That's it's fair. Poop. I'm sorry. It's, it's I didn't personal. mean to put you on the Thank spot you. like did that. You, did you poop? Hey, bud. It's personal. Jason's his roommate, so they can ask each other the uncomfortable questions. You'll know. So let's talk about House. Uh, we're about to go see it at the Trilon in a few days. We wanted to get this episode out ahead of time. We're going to be releasing it hopefully the same day as the showing. We've uh, all seen the movie before. Yes. Uh, we all recorded a, number a of podcast times. about it. Like you said. Well, not all of us. Um, I was invited to the movie screening, but I was not invited to the episode recording. Just kidding. I probably was. I have so many other obligations. I this was episode, what, like five or six? Or it was something? the second episode. Second episode. Uh, it was like the fifth or sixth episode we recorded, but the um, second we released. Um, and I think this was before Cody was interested in the podcast. I had to bring him on, sort of. I've been, in, I've been interested my whole life, uh, actually. Actually. Uh, so we want to talk about uh, what 
if anything we've learned about the movie since last time we saw it or since last time we spoke about it, rather. Uh, anything that sticks out to us now that didn't then um, and what our general impressions are of it uh, almost a year since our last time we recorded about it. Uh, Has anybody seen any uh, Nobuhiro Obayashi movies since then? Uh, I have not. No. He's, it, his no. movies are devilishly hard to find, I believe. Really? Aren't they? Like, I seem to remember last time we spoke about this, that House is far and away is like most popular, most well-known yeah. one, and that the rest of his works have not been super well-received since then, no, but that he's had a lot in the he time He does have since. a few that have been well-received. It, it's honestly a lot of Japanese cinema, even stuff that's well-regarded in Japan, if it's not one of the films, like, sadly, that has, like, been kind of, I don't know, accepted by, like the western canon it's like often very hard to find uh like i was on was on reddit and there was like a list of like the japanese film critics selected top 10 japanese films of like the 1980s and like it was like two out of the 10 you could find at all and it's like these are the best ones supposedly but you just hmm. you couldn't find kind them of, anywhere that kind of like reminds me of cure right where like we uh saw cure at the trilon we all thought it was a masterpiece yeah, i certainly did uh there's n- fucking nowhere to yeah, watch the stream or by now. It oh, is really? Like, it's but, not. Is it not? It's no, not. I think I think that was a joke tweet. I think I saw the same tweet. And oh, I think okay. it was a joke. Uh, uh, but I looked there, it up. So, yeah. It's not. It's not a Criterion. Uh, it barely has like any sort of usable DVD or Blu-ray release. We're talking about Cure when we should be talking about House. No, yeah. But by the same related. token, these yeah. movies can be really hard to find. Fortunately, House is not one of those. It's been ever since it was released in the West. It's been like garnered a real cult following here. Even my new coworker Aaron. Uh, is going to see it at the Trilon as well. Um, Shout out to Aaron, come on the pod. This is one of the first things that I learned about her uh, because she said she was going to a movie on uh, on like the day before Halloween and I asked her what and she said, I'm seeing House. And I said, at the Trilon? She said, yes. And my mind exploded. <laughs> Fortunately, this person is on the level. Uh, anyway, just to speak to like how easily accessible this movie is uh, through many different channels. It's obviously on the Criterion channel. You can probably find pretty good streams of it somewhere. Uh, and of course, it's available through their Criterion collection and physical media as well. Um, this has been a physical media. Yeah, this is the Criterion sending that check to I, Jason. I've been, I think I've been meaning <laughs> to ask fuck? though. You keep bringing up Reddit. Reddit correspondent yeah. Aaron Grossman. Uh, yeah. What does Reddit think of this movie? Uh, this Reddit probably loves this movie. Uh, this is. I mean, I, I think I talked about this the last time, but like I had first heard about this movie on like random, not Reddit, but like random other nerdy internet message boards back in like late high school was where I first heard about this. Um, in a way that. Like, Do we want to introduce the show? Or like, like just to say what we're going to talk about? I guess. Um, this is the introduction now. Okay. That. Yeah. Um, so, John, tell us what we're about to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually leaving. Uh, <laughs> See ya. So, yeah, the Trilon, my, the Trilon Cinema is a local revival house theater, if you want to call it that. It plays 35mm prints um, and DCP of classic films, foreign films, art house films. Um, and mainstream beloved films, cult films, everything across the board. It's run by cinephiles and volunteers of Minneapolis. And we go there <clears throat> almost on a weekly basis to uh, profess our, n- our n- nerd lifestyle. <laughs> that, was a bad way. that was really uh, good, though. We, yeah. until... So you guys go far more often than I do. I think I've seen maybe like a dozen films there. And really? you guys seem to go every... I, I, do I make wow, that much of an impression that you would just assume I've been to every one with you? I know that there are a few that, at least a few that you guys I think I just have a really shitty yeah, memory. <laughs> I mean, we don't go there every week, but I, I like to say we do. I feel, yeah. I feel like it's almost. We that. will now. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if we're going to commit to this thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was the first movie you guys saw at Trial? Do you remember? Yeah. Um, I, John, 
you went years before I yeah. started going. We should probably maybe talk about the history of it too. Yeah. When I say the history, just the name that it was. <laughs> sure. But yeah, because it talk about the history was called the Micro Cinema, right? Um, and it was and basically just like what fifty seats. It was fifty seats at that time, yeah. And I think it used to be even smaller than that, right? Yeah. Was before it? that? Was there an know. expansion oh, that became the micro cinema? Like it used well, to be. What tinier? was it before? I don't remember. Whoa! Is this just some guy? I don't know. It's not like I was hearing about a ton of Japanese cinema. I was not like a avid movie goer at that yeah, time. Yeah, it's it's uh it's wild production story, and also the the final finished product being as batshit um in the sort of conventional sense as it is uh has really helped this movie's promotion right it's a good poster um, too yeah it also has great um, iconography we talked about that last time about how interesting and, and uh great it is that this movie is so commercially mm-hmm. uh like well cast because it 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 sort of like walks you into how crazy it actually is in a really great way um but uh yeah this movie has a, a reputation as like um like the er cult weird horror movie, right? Where like yeah. a lot of like college students or uh, um, cult film aficionados love it, and often in a sort of shitty, ironic, like so bad it's good sense. Yeah. Um, at least that's that's its reputation, right? Is that yeah. it's sort of considered a fun to watch, silly yeah. horror movie. Well, yeah. yeah, that's part of what I want to talk about in today's episode uh, as sort of a look back. Of course, last time we spoke about it, we were taking it was the first time we were committing our thoughts about it to record. Uh, so I think if you're really interested in that, go back and listen to that episode, episode two from January something. Um, but just knowing, uh, you know, how we generally feel about this movie, we all really like it uh, for different reasons. Right. And, and unironically, right. right. Uh, that's, that was kind of the point I was uh, trying to make is that like, I, I think the reason why I wanted to revisit this ep- episode anyway, is to sort of um, like argue against that, interpretation or reading of Haosu, which to be fair, that's not an original thought. I think that there's, there are a lot of people that are sort of um, critically revisiting Haosu um, in this day and age as, as like not, not an ironic masterpiece, but just a masterpiece, like just a really, really good movie right? in both like historical um, sort of uh, time and place senses. And also just broadly in terms of art making, it's really good. Right. I, I I should say just as a, not to back up, but as a disclaimer, I think that liking this movie because it's a little crazy is a legitimate totally reason. Totally fine. Like, yeah. the only reason that I know this movie is because Tim Turry, a uh, friend of the podcast, Tim Turry, I don't think he even knows we do this, but a uh, friend of the podcast, Tim Turry, uh, told me about it when I was an intern at Game Informer, and I it sort of stewed in my mind as a movie that I should see until finally I did. And he all he told me was, like, it's wild. I can't prepare you for it. You just got to watch it. There's a lot going on there. Um, so, like, my mindset going in the very first time I watched it a few years ago was exactly that, like... I'm going to experience something completely foreign to me that's of a different, like, cultural and horror sensibility, and I got what I got out of it. Um, so, like, that's – I don't think it's an unreasonable way to approach the movie or, like, to like the movie is on a, on the terms of it just being crazy and weird, but to realize that, like, that there is something to critically appraise there, which leads me into my next point. What I want to do in this episode is to coax out of y'all, uh, w- like, what you have learned or what sort of arguments or criticism you've seen about Haosu since the last time we talked about it. Um I can lead if nobody else has anything right off the bat. Um, I should just shout out, uh, ever since getting into Obayashi's um, movies, I, I've since um, been introduced to, uh, through her works, um, a writer named Esther Rosenfield, mm-hmm. uh, Esther on Film on Twitter. She's a, a film critic. Um, she's like the number one fan of Obayashi. Oh, yeah? And yeah, uh, I think... A lot of his movies are listed among her favorites, and she has a great letterbox where she unpacks a lot of them. Um, 
and uh, her interpretations of Obayashi's works as like critical masterpieces and um, sort of um, aesthetic and uh, I don't know, um, like like very specific aesthetic and uh, um, critical. Uh, masterworks following a certain mold uh, was really informative to me and something I really enjoyed. So if you're really interested in Obayashi, uh, Obayashi's works, Obayashi's sort of um, very distinctive um, idiosyncratic sensibilities, I think she's a really cool person to follow. Um, I just, I like her stuff a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I to go back to what I was saying before, I think Obayashi himself is is generally considered very highly now. Um, I think a few years ago he wrote, and we we brought this up last year, um, but he he's he's made some movies that are just like unironic critical um, smash hits now, and he's generally regarded as like a, a really um, stylistically idiosyncratic. Detective Olson, case number one three six eight nine. It's 1.30 in the morning. Just got back from the scene up on 9th Street. Small room on the top floor in a big office building downtown. Looks like a recording booth. My opinion? It ain't no garage, and uh, they ain't no Marin. Not anymore, anyway. But this shit would make even CSI go WTF. So Vic One found dismembered with their pieces sort of stuffed into, uh, get a load of this, a baby grand. A baby grand piano. Some German brand. Beckstein? 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 Anyway. How the fuck do you get a 900-pound piano up two separate elevators to the 41st floor without anyone seeing you? Victim 2. I don't know. Maybe it's victim 2 and 3. Anyway, there's a body here with two heads sort of fused together. And get this. Twins. Lab says skin cells from one of the heads on that thing is a perfect match for the head and the piano. Does that make it triplets? Vic, uh, three, four? That lucky motherfucker. Dead quicker than you can say boo with a big X cut into the neck. Almost ear to ear. Whoever got that poor soul nicked both the jugular and the cauterid. Must have been jacked to get that deep and that clean. Then, there's the bananas. Just a bunch of fucking bananas sitting in a chair. Then... Across the street, on top of the parking ramp on 8th and 3rd, there's another body. This guy's got a few air holes, presumably made by a Sig Sauer left at the scene. Not sure yet where this fix fits into the 9th Street scene, but the lab confirms there are five voices on the recording. Podcasts. Everybody's got one. but intelligent yeah. filmmaker yeah someone with a lot of variety i think too yeah. um i think if you if you watch how so you may uh, maybe stupidly but you might get the opinion that maybe a lot of his stuff is exactly the same you um pull that mic to where you're lo- talking into it while no, you're i can't the it's the, you, the arm will move. i mean i could i mean i don't know you Figure want me to do it while we're Figure recording it doing yes. it doing we're it doing it right now this is actually worse i have to baby. contort my body you have done it wrong i'm gonna, I'm gonna just, go back just go back i'm gonna go back thank you uh, he's remembered. He's thought of now very highly, right? Yeah. Thank you. Well, and and like I think what you were saying is that like he he's also made just like straight up like period dramas, right? Like mm-hmm. one of his one of his most recent films is like literally just a very serious, uh, very played straight, or you know, not necessarily played straight pejoratively, but uh, compared to something like House, a much more conventional dr- wartime drama about World War Two. Yeah. Um, and so he does things like that. Uh, 
while at the same time maintaining a, a like um, an idiosyncratic um, lens and uh, filmmaking sensibility that is um, extremely unique and extremely mm-hmm. fun to look at, uh, which is huge for House, right? Right. So, I wonder if he still carries that like. Obviously, House will forever be the like most popular thing he's ever done, the the most well known thing he's ever done, especially in the West. But I wonder if he still carries that as like, I should make another one of those, or if he's like totally in now on. Yeah, I wonder how much of it is is, you know, so much of House to me seems like working around limitations or just like dealing with yeah, limitations. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the first podcast we talked a lot about like the practical effects or like the. Some of the special effects just being kind of like a shot in the dark about what they might look like and just like, I guess we're going to find out tomorrow how this weird scene turned out because I don't actually know because we're kind of winging it here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is not to take away from any of the brilliance of the, the making of that movie, but a lot of that was kind of a uh, not necessarily luck. Right. But it's the kind of thing where like, how do you replicate something like house down the line? I don't know. Right. And now, which is an interesting thing to think of, because. House started as like an attempt to recreate the success of Jaws, and now like there's going to be a series of like ever since ever since House, the 42 years it's been around, there have been attempts to recreate the success of House based on like low budget limitations and yeah. insane imagery. And Ooh, that's a really good point. House has sort of become the archetype that it itself was made in sort of a weird replication of, right? Yeah. Um, that like now people set out to make weird horror in the vein of house in in the way that you might make like bad movies in the vein of the room or something um which is which is funny because it's also sort of a betrayal of what the actual lessons of house are uh uh-huh i which i don't think you could even do it cody i want your opinions on this but like i don't think you can make another house and have it have the same impact as house because it like people know it's coming yeah correct i think we're we're way past that point um and actually while i was watching it um I was rewatching it earlier today, pulling back the curtain. Um, can't the remember, I can't remember if we talked about it uh, or if y'all talked about it the first episode or not, but like serious Twin Peaks vibes coming from, from Haosu. Um, yeah, the juxtaposition of tones is like just rewatching again, especially for the second time. It And like pivoting to something like Twin Peaks, which is um, like kind of foregrounded on that. And then obviously they do a lot of David Lynch does a lot of different things, Um, but like tragedy and like cornball, like soap opera music was like, huh? Like that's where that comes from. Yeah, specifically the the beginning of this movie yeah. is very much and, that, and like pointedly, self consciously soap opera specifically, right? Yeah, like it's it's written to evoke uh, that sort of cheese, uh-huh. right? And I think for that reason, um, House is a film that warrants and like needs uh, a rewatch, like going through the first time if it's something that you want to experience again or even if you don't i think seeing it a second time adds a lot to the experience i remember my first time seeing it it was at the trial on and it was a lot of me reacting to what seemed like a smattering of like random images sounds edits um and in a lot of ways they are random but like pulling back and watching it a second time you can kind of get the purpose behind it um in my mind it's like a, a horror satire maybe one of the best of its kind um seeing true evil from like the perspective of naive children um is kind of how i don't know i look at it and i don't know if we're getting into anybody else's points but that's kind of where i would want to start yeah i like that a lot i especially like the twin peaks uh reference because 
Twin Peaks does a similar thing with the way that it it balances or juxtaposes or slams uh, tones and ideas up against one another for a really unique effect. Um, this movie, in my opinion, and you know your mileage may vary, but I don't think that it sacrifices the thematic horror at the core of what it is. And this is it's a movie that, in my opinion, is talking about some actually really horrific material. It's talking about, um, again, sort of in a Twin Peaks model, like the visitation of. A, a culture and history's horrors upon the the generation that that is forced to uh-huh. come out of it and and how those things are inescapable and how they dehumanize or transform um what should be new life into its own mold uh which again is like there's a really interesting parallel there to twin peaks because twin peaks is sort of playing in the same ideas um but but twin peaks is is often and Hausu, they're often so silly and so um funny or nonsensical but none of that um ever sort of uh steals from the horror inherent at the heart in fact it enhances it right like it, mm-hmm. it gives you it gives you a broader palette to taste that horror from mm-hmm. that's a weird metaphor well there's like a lot of there's a lot of like you said weird tonal like tonal slams is a way to, a good way to put it i think because you'll be <clears throat> excuse me in like a pretty maybe not standard but pretty predictable uh horror scenario where things are quiet and you're expecting like a jump of some kind and then something completely left field will happen like somebody will get eaten by a, a piano or somebody will begin putting on or like just appear in a wedding dress and evoking like you said the horror of of the next generation's expectations uh of like arranged marriage and stuff uh where it it like uses that to very specific effect um very in a very smart way that like is the reason I think that this movie is still watched. And like you said, worth a rewatch, Cody. Definitely. Uh, And like the kind of what you're getting at, the scenes from this movie that like really resonated with me the most, the ones that I got the most out of are the ones where it is like, again, almost like a child is viewing this action and maybe not picking, picking up on the, the horrific material. It is like you said, Harry, like very distinctly a horror film still at its core dealing with really horrific subject matter, the um, story of um, Gorgeous's family, um, the dating back to the war, the fiancé who never came home. Um, you know, the crew of seven children is hearing this story and they're just not picking up on, like, the really, really horrific things that are being talked to them, that are being discussed. And then the movie is talking outside the other side of its mouth. We see the imagery up close. We know kind of what we're in for with this really like really traumatic backdrop yeah and it it makes this great sort of argument um stylistically or in in terms of um craft that uh that you don't need to pull from uh conventional horror materials only or conventional horror frameworks only in order to make horrific points it there's this sense in which uh it can work outside of genre in order to enhance genre or to enhance its point mm-hmm. even if it's doing things that are ridiculous right like like even if even if they're doing things that that shouldn't work or that that don't that feel so outside the realm of what we consider horror that we have to reevaluate what we're watching from the the jump which is why it's sort of appropriate that people have such weird reactions to this i think we talked about how uh how like we consider this movie something of a punk um like uh special I, i guess 
like it's a very punk movie and Nobuhiko Kobayashi was very punk for making it because like the tools and to borrow a phrase from um 20th century women the tools that he uses to make this movie or like rather his passion for the movie and for what he's trying to say outstrips his tools and his ability to actually say it sometimes right like the studio put a lot of money toward this but he had much bigger ideas than he could really like execute upon going to refer to the movie as rent a cat or rent an echo man we've been recording it's, it's, forever <laughs> it's rent an echo because even if she, in like in the actual movie when she's speaking she says rent a in english oh yeah i didn't consider it when she's singing rent she sings an rent an echo like which that gets stuck in my head every I single goddamn it. day it's so funny. Yeah. one of my favorite bits is that her cell phone does the song oh does it anytime she gets a call it's like a little chip tune like I never noticed that. So what a good funny. touch. Every time. This movie isn't full of those little tiny touches. It's more of like those like um, uh, awkward interactions between people. So I like whenever I notice any of them, I'm really, I don't know. This movie is full of a lot of little touches. Quirky. Like the yeah. neighbor saying the same thing all the time and coming yeah, over. That, and... That's what I mean. But not like little tiny details that you might not notice. Right. Mm. Like it's, it's that repetition almost. Yeah. Right? Like that familiarity with the thing and uh, sort of the routine that she has of her life. Uh, I really liked this you're, movie. Yeah, you're right in that it is is like the the quirky things in this movie are almost like beating you over the head well, with the, its there, quirkiness. Not in a bad way. There's subtext here, but it's not like there are little things hidden under, like little yeah. fan service, I there guess. Might, is I what mean, there I'm might be, of. but it, it's it's like very Wes Anderson, right? Is Wes Anderson too late? I, I actually also got that impression. There's a lot of shots that are like very centered, very symmetrical. It's very quirky. There's a lot mm-hmm. of repeating of lines. I was getting a Wes Anderson vibe as yeah. well. Yeah, that's pretty. That's that's a good idea because uh, or a good concept because it like Wes Anderson has his very specific visual style. But aside from his visual style, his work evokes a certain feeling. Mm-hmm. I won't like unilaterally place what he's done, but. Um, and I feel like I do get the same feeling from yeah. now that I think about Especially it. Especially because this movie, as well as a lot of Wes Anderson's stuff, has that darker, more somber undertone. Mm-hmm. You know, in that, like, this movie is very cute and kitschy and is also just entirely about grief. Uh, it is incredibly sad, yeah. isn't it? It is incredibly sad. Like, yeah. throughout the entire movie, it's all about these people filling their holes in their life, both, like, you know actually and in their like emotional life and Mm -hmm. she's helping all these people and then it gets to be her turn and she like chooses specifically not to do that because she wants to live how she's living and not choose that hole in her life and continue with her grief and it's a very sad ending despite how like happy the movie is yeah and it's like uh each person that she interacts with each person that she helps through these cats just drives home further and further that concept of like she's not really living for herself in many ways she's living to help others which maybe is her fulfillment maybe that's the only way to live i mean yeah i mean it's like you know she lost her grandmother right who she was living with and that's kind of like this whole this grief that she's living with and she's deciding not to move on from that and it's a very like conscious decision and i don't know it's like sad but it's also not sad because it's it's a choice that she's making. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. And then there's also the really sadness with the stuff that leads up to that with her elementary school friend coming back. Oh, yeah. That was very touching, especially that scene um, where he's obviously running from the cops, right? And <laughs> yeah. they're they're coming after him, and he's very upset and sad. And he, like, looks at the cat's graves, and she says all of the cat's names. And he was like, wow, you remember them all. And she was like, yeah, of course I do. And he goes... Would you remember my name? And she, and then she, 
changes the subject and leaves and he never comes back. And it's like a heartbreaking. It is. Yeah. It's a heavy ass movie underneath all this like, you know, cute kitschiness, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's, you know, I, I get the – we were talking, I don't know, probably 20 minutes ago at this point about uh, it's a shame that we haven't seen uh, any of uh, Okagami's other movies because this does seem very personal and I kind of want to watch her other films to get a a larger perspective on how much of that work is personal because mm-hmm. it seems like a very personal film to me. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I could be wrong about that, but that's kind of the feeling that I get. Yeah. I actually maybe don't get that with Wes Anderson, although I don't, I don't know jack shit about Wes Anderson. I maybe haven't seen his earlier films, but I get – I get the sense that if I saw some of his earlier films, Bottle Rocket and Rushmore and stuff, that I might get more of that. Yeah. He seems yeah. to have delved more into fantasy and like sure. larger stories yeah. since he's gone on. But yeah, just I, I, there's like a deep sadness underneath this movie that's like just a real bummer, um, even though I think. It- <laughs> that it's much stronger in vision than it was able to be in like execution. Um,. A little bit. I think just in regard to, like, some of the thematic stuff, like, if I if I try and compare this to, um, like, certain films in, like, the Western horror canon, and I'm not an expert on horror, like, really, that's a genre I should learn more about and watch more horror films, um, but it reminds me a lot of, like, Evil Dead in terms of, like, some of the way that oh, it yeah. balances the comedic elements. Um, and in a way that when I think about movie, like, a movie like Halloween, like, we, we were at a party the other day and Halloween 2 was playing. Um, and it's like, it's a very funny movie to watch now, mostly because of how it's aged. Um, but movies like Evil Dead and like Haosu, um, you get the feeling that it was always kind of intentional, those comedic elements. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm not giving Halloween enough credit, you know, I, I could be wrong there. Um, but something about how this movie, um, weaves between the thematic elements there, between the, the really harsh, uh, you know, kind of cultural criticisms maybe at a certain point and the really funny kind of psychedelic trippy shit um, is something that I, I think I really appreciate that maybe put me off this movie the first time I watched it. But as I kind of think about it, it's like an aspect that I really appreciate and it's like a juggling act. Well, it's pretty good at marrying those two things, right? Like we've been talking about the tonal slams between this movie, which is a term that I'm just going to keep using. Uh, so, but we've been talking about the tonal slams. Uh, tonal slam, slams? Slams. Slams. Tonal slams. So a few light slams now and then. <laughs> What? This is that fire reference. Oh. Terribly transvestigenexist movie, but I cannot stop referencing. You're a that. wicked, wicked monkey. I, wicked, I think that's Mrs. Doubtfire. Wicked, wicked monkey. She calls somebody a wicked, wicked monkey. Wiki, wiki monkey. Shout out to the lighthouse. Film of 2019. Willem Dafoe, come on the pod. Uh, but no, those things are married pretty well, right? I think that's what we've been talking about recently, or like uh, lately on the pod, is about how these things work. They're not just like here's a left turn because that was really heavy just a minute ago. This is like this is making the same point just with different tools. Right. Like you've got the scenes where I forget which which girl it is, but she's smashed in the clock. And one of the characters is like, I'm sorry, I couldn't save you in there. And she's like, she's the clock is bleeding and she's bleeding. And it's like really gross. And then the next scene is like Kung Fu practicing Kung Fu out on the, you know, out on a on a rock overlooking the shore. Um, so, yeah, it, it really like it works those two things really well together. It sounds like you're like drawing a bit of a and, line between them. Not just juxtapose, though, but like. I don't want to sound like one of those assholes who's like, I laugh at people dying in scary movies. But, like, a lot of the horrific moments in this movie are fucking really funny. Like, the piano scene is, like, absolutely horrific. It's really funny to watch that shit. It's really, I don't know, it's good, right? It is, It's not it is. just a funny scene next to a horrific scene. But it's kind of this, this weird third feeling you get when there's these two things happening at the same time. And you kind of can't believe what you're supposed mm-hmm. to be watching. Um, yeah, that's good shit. I like that. I agree. And I like the, uh, has anybody else here seen uh, Evil Dead? Nope. Yeah, I have. You've seen Evil Dead? Nice. Yeah. Uh, do you think that what 
Aaron's saying is is also like true. Not for Evil Dead, not for me anyway. <laughs> oh, ouch. Um, Evil Dead 2, better at it. Evil Dead 2 is probably better at it. I don't know. Evil Dead 1, I don't know. I have a thing about claymation. It really freaks me out. Mm-hmm. I hate how claymation looks. So I think some of the things that people are like, oh my God, look how funny that is. It's just scary to me. <laughs> like it just, it just freaks me out. <laughs> Your idea of Halloween classics are Wallace and Gromit. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't like the way that they move. Yeah. I don't know. Something about it freaks me out. That's Especially fair. like... When you add in the gore, so I don't know, Haosu has, like, all of the weird green screen stuff, and they, like, didn't know how it was going to turn out, and it's, like, no problem, but, like, the claymation, like, that's a lot of frames to record. They, like, were very purposeful in how they wanted Mm -hmm. that to look. Yeah. I don't know. They seem very different to me, even though they're kind of the same for people who aren't freaked out by claymation. I don't know. (laughs) So even the funny parts are still horrifying Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, well, now I'm curious because we, uh, Jason, you mentioned Kung Fu. We've been talking about Claymation. We've been talking about the Demon Piano. Um, these are all like really famous images from this film that I think people take with them and like they get referenced, you know, as much as a movie like House You gets referenced uh, in the West. Yeah. But like those come up a lot. Were there any other images that stood out to anyone? Uh, I can lead on this one. Um, it. It's not the most like it's not the one that everybody remembers when they think of this movie, but it's uh, it just struck me with how like practical it was. Where the rest of the movie is very green screeny and stuff, where there's just a whole room filled with blood uh, all of a sudden. You know, it's been a slow flood, but like that is the probably the one most practical thing. Like they ruined an entire set just to fill it with fake blood. We're talking. Are we talking about the climactic? Yeah, sequence. yeah, where she's like floating on the door, and a lot of weird shit happens during that scene. Yeah. But it's all mostly all like uh, in post, right? But in this, like, it was a very practical effect. They filled up a room with a red dyed water, um, and you know, it's it, it does what it does for the movie, uh, and it cuts to a lot of different shit while it's doing that. But like, when I think about some of my favorite stuff from this movie, it's it's that where like it's not. Um, it's not the cat, and it's not the heads floating on the green screen, like weird faces. But it's just like. I, I think of that mo- that scene a lot. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up too because watching this movie again, like that scene stood out the first time I watched this amongst everything else. Like the ramp up to that, and then just have that be like your show stopping like climax sequence. That holds up for me as like one of my favorite like set design slash transition things in a movie mm-hmm. I've ever seen. It's so impressive and it looks so good. Um, one one shot specifically that I rewound. Um, and rewatched a, a couple of times. Uh, I was talking about how like the movie speaks to both like this really young, naive group um, of essentially children living out this nightmare and uh, like speaking to the evil directly. There's that scene where Auntie goes into like she leaves the room by going into a refrigerator mm-hmm. and then. Um, Hey gang, welcome to another episode of Sheet Cody's, where we talk about the video games that have engaged us, influenced us, and inspired us over the years. I'm Cody. I'm Harry. I'm Charlie. And I'm Aaron. Aaron, do you have anything to plug for us today? Yeah, well, uh, just a reminder, guys, I am going to be streaming Morrowind uh, for charity next Saturday, Morrowinded uh, on Twitter. Uh, check that out. We're going to be helping out those kids, so uh, hoping to get that 10 quay. 10k goal going uh so yeah check that out sounds great i love morrowind you do you there's one thing you've told me a lot over and over again how much you love that game great thanks for that aaron i will be there and you all should be there too 
Uh, today, we are talking about Yakuza 0, uh, released in the United States of America in January 2017. Um, I would like to get everybody's thoughts on this. Uh, I love this game. It is my favorite of the Yakuza series. How's Harry? Uh, I agree with that strongly, Cody. It's also my favorite Yakuza game. I've played each of the Yakuza games. I think that this is the strongest of any of them, which is really exciting because it's also one of the more recent, and it sort of uh, paved the way for the the second era of Yakuza when it became so popular in the West and and really um, rebooted the series in a really exciting way. What does everybody else think? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good point. Um, Yakuza Zero is actually my first Yakuza, which I don't think is true for most people, considering it's like a prequel. But I actually don't think it's a bad place to start. I don't get a lot of the in jokes that they throw at you, but I do play it with other people who have played it, and they'll point it out to me every once in a while. So, but the combat system in this one is much easier to pick up than the other Yakuza games. So I feel like it is a good place to start, especially if you're worried about the gameplay aspects of it. Do you guys agree? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that the, the combat is just, in my opinion, a little bit better than when it started using the Dragon Engine later or when it started using um, or kept using the old PS2 engine earlier. Um, and so it's sort of a, the, the golden era of Yakuza combat, in my opinion. Uh, Aaron, what it, what's your opinion of this game? I'm going to be real honest, guys. I think I, got, I think I got the wrong email. I thought we were talking about SpongeBob Hero Pants for the 3DS. Um, That's next week. Oh, shit. Uh um, yeah, y- Yakuza Zero is good. I think it, it does a good job of setting up the characters and the the plots that you'll see in the later Yakuza games. Um, this is such real... a shame because Aaron he has he has pages of notes. It, it looks like the Bible uh, about SpongeBob. What was the game? I'm sorry. Uh, SpongeBob Hero Pants for the 3DS. Um, it's a, a 2015 action adventure game. I haven't started um, it yet. I was that was actually in my top ten from 2015. That's a good pull, Aaron. It's like an 80 hour game. I, I mean, I spent all weekend doing it. Uh, is that the RPG? Yeah, it's it's really. Well, we can talk. We can talk about Yakuza. I just, I'm sorry, guys. I'm here sorry. we are. Here we are on the Yakuza episode talking about SpongeBob I, Hero Pants. I mean, like it's really fine though because I feel like these two actually tie in pretty well together because you know you can go back and forth between Patrick and SpongeBob the same way. <laughs> the same way that you can you can switch back and forth and have to switch back and forth between Kiryu and Majima as their their stories play out in parallel but never touching until the end of the game. There's a side quest where Patrick opens up a nightclub and has to run it. Like a hostess club? It's not It's not literally called a hostess club. They do a little bit of obfuscation, but obviously the, the inspiration was there it, for Yakuza. It doesn't seem like it fits in with pre-established SpongeBob lore. Um, I mean, it does take place under his rock, though. Guys, I feel real bad. I, I, sorry, I messed this up. I'm sorry. Sorry, we can, we can no, talk it, about Yakuza. There are interesting things to parallel. There is, of course, the... I feel so the, bad. The, the moment where, uh, or the... the sort of med- metagame, subgame in um, the Spongebob adventure where Spongebob buys up real estate in Bikini Bottom sort of section by section and he has to combat with Mr. Krabs and Plankton and Squidward and sort of other aspiring rival uh, real estate tycoons. Not unlike how Kiryu in 1980s um, Kamurocho has to combat with the five billionaires uh, who are also real estate competing tycoons it's interesting it feels it feels like i'm thinking about this more and more did did yakuza zero rip off this 2015 spongebob ds game yeah i'm i'm really glad aaron that you actually messed this up because oh these parallels 
These parallels are actually really great. We should have planned this from the beginning. Uh, I'm not as far into SpongeBob as I am into Yakuza because uh, we were going to do it next week, but I'm glad you brought this to our attention. This is great. Cody, was this your plan all along? Uh it was mostly uh, my plan to tie in our SpongeBob rewatch podcast, which you know, stay tuned for that this summer. Um, so thank you for that very much. Bikini Aaron. Potoms, Begin- uh, Bikini Potoms. You are correct, Harry. Yeah, that's something I'm really excited about. I think we're 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 planning on we're continuing cheat codies. That won't be going anywhere, so don't worry about that. Yep, don't worry, fans. What we're going to try to do is we're going to try to tie uh, each episode of SpongeBob in with the video game we're playing, just to sort of uh, try try to uncover these sort of hidden parallels. See, the thing about SpongeBob is you can feel its influence touching on everything. It'll be a fun multimedia journey that I don't think anybody's ever attempted before. Quick note, we will be uh, putting uh, Family Guys, our Family Guy rewatch podcast, we will be putting that on hiatus. So, um, season three, I mean, there's a lot of seasons to go, but we'll get back to it eventually. What was the name of that Family Guy podcast? Family Guys. I see. Thank you for listening to Cheat Cody's. I've been Cody. I guess I've been Harry. I've been Charlie. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm just... I'm Aaron. Good night. And take us out with that classic tagline. You always do, Cody. <laughs> who was... It might have been fantasy. I may be misremembering. Who, um, like, sees her auntie go into the fridge, and the camera is, like, up in the ceiling at this point. And then we just wait 10 seconds. Um, the girl drops, like, a dish. I think it's prof who's like the hell's wrong with you and she's like uh she's like auntie went into the fridge she's like what the hell are you talking about meanwhile auntie is crawling across the ceiling like same shot like in front of the screen she's looking at the at the kids talking and then she turns to face the camera as if to be like can you believe these idiots (laughs) get a load of these (laughs) schmucks right it's just like like out of focus too right slightly out of of focus and then like when she turns to the camera her facial expression is in focus and she's so like amazing eyes Droopy. I right. remember this shot. It is the creepiest thing. It is. And like the the close-ups up to that point of like Auntie, of Gorgeous, of Gorgeous's mother, they're all very like they're looking directly at the camera. It's those moments when the movie is like, remember, like there's something really haunting and like awful going on here. But that was the first maybe the first time that the movie kind of like turns that a little bit and leans into its shtick. Uh and that embodied just like a lot of what that movie communicated to me in that one moment. Do you do we uh, do you guys find this movie scary? Like like were you scared watching this in the theater or at home or like mm, there's some stuff that still freaks me out when I see it even though like I know it's all shtick. Like there's one shot that I when I think of like actually scary things in this movie, I think of I think it's gorgeous is uh in the bath and there's like hair that starts creeping up her back. That's obviously just reversed footage of like hair being like drawn away from her. But that's still fucking creepy. Like, I've always had a little bit of a thing about deep water and, like, big things in deep water and creepy things and tendrils in deep water. Uh, so that plays to that a little bit. Um, as Like, most of it, when I see it, even the first time I saw it, I didn't really find it particularly scary. There's, like, just those, like, garish uh, uh, expressions from both, like, creatures and humans in this movie are, like, they impress upon your mind. But I don't find them very scary, no. Do you? 
Uh, I I don't think I find the movie very scary. I think the shot that we just talked about uh, with the fridge, I think that that is like creepy or like very unsettling just in the way that it is shot. But at the same time, in very like Cody was saying, very winky, right? Like it's looking at you to say to address like, isn't that weird? Yeah, that it's that like, just happened. again, it's like it is very funny. It is very creepy and it is a very fourth wall breaking and is like acknowledging that you feel both those things at the mm-hmm. same time. Were um, you? Are you scared by – just to compare it again, are you scared yeah. by Evil Dead? You think that these uh, things are like on the ter- parallel paths. I was scared by evil, the Evil Dead movies when I first saw them. I have not seen those in a while. Um, I've actually seen like Army of Darkness more recently, which is maybe actually not also a good. bad comparison. Although Army of Darkness is like That's pretty much a, a straight movie. comedy. Yeah. yeah, There's like maybe one scare in that movie that, that's it's somewhat gross, effective. It's a gross comedy. Oh, what's wrong with that? You know, like – No, I mean I like it. I mean it's gross. Like it's very violent. It's very oh. gory. Yeah, yeah. But it's not scary. Fair. I, I agree. Um, but no, I, I don't think I find this too scary. I will say, uh, knowing that you have a fear of like stuff touching you in the water, I I will use that as, as prank material uh, as your roommate in the future. So just something to think what about. What bodies of water do we have in our apartment? It's after the bathtub. Yeah, bathtub. I you're, just, go, you're going to touch me in the yeah, shower? Yeah, throw a squid at you while you're showering. <laughs> turn off the light. I don't know. I'm I, Greek. I could I mess with you is all I'm squids. saying. Yeah, that's true. That is, that is true. Uh, Jason, I think you brought up a really good point about oh, the, <laughs> the blood, the blood pool. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I was not very fearful while watching this, but I think there's, uh, a lot that can be learned about from the terrifying things that lie beneath us and we have no idea what's there. Wow. So the blood pool, you're right. I think that really speaks to something. Yeah. It also like that scene, I like it a lot, but it does freak me out because like there are times when the camera goes completely submerged. And you're just seeing her flail and unsure what to do because the water's rising and she's unable to get air. Uh, yeah, it's that. Wow. Wow. That was good. That was a good observation on your part, not mine. It I'm was your like, observation, Jason. No, like you're connecting it thematically to the idea of like buried things and un, like things that you surfaces you haven't scratched. Um, maybe we're getting back more toward the uh, critical analysis of this movie since in the like 40 some years since it's come out. 42, as you 42. said earlier. 40 poo. I, I will say that I don't find this movie like especially scary. I don't mean that to be like a negative criticism of the movie. Um, I think that if anything, this this movie makes me feel like a certain kind of dread that I get when I'm watching certain horror movies in which the the like violence enacted on its characters feels deeply unfair in a way that is very like upsetting to me. Like these are all very innocent young women that are just being like fucking eaten and murdered for like kind of like not no reason but like they are completely unaware of why anything that is happening to them is happening to them and it just feels like such a fucking bummer watching it it's like man like none of these characters deserved it in a way that like a lot of movies often justify what's happening even a lot of past present future Sound waves don't know these concepts. The audio you're interpreting right now was made for you by your transmitter right in this moment. Compared to the experience of receiving it now, the notion that it was copied from somewhere else for some other purpose begins to feel arbitrary. It doesn't matter when I spoke these lines, only that you're hearing them right now. In sound, the ghosts of the past, impossible present, or forsaken future are remade and reconsidered anew every time they're experienced. A phenomenon you're about to experience firsthand when we return to the Tribe of Podcast.
Hey everyone, this is Cody Narvison from Trilove with a very special announcement. For this weekend only, all of your favorite Trilove products will be specially discounted for the first time ever. That's right, this weekend, log on to the Trilove shop and experience big-ass savings. If you want to avoid the high traffic issues that typically come with both holiday shopping and navigating our website, now's the time to make your move. Our DJ Trauma coffee mugs are on sale. Our Fuck James Woods commemorative tote bags, on sale. Our brand new John McKay built-to-scale sculptures, I want so bad, I think I'm going to bust. Need a gift for Dad? Our Billy Bob Thornton Sisyphus canvas prints are half off. Need a gift for Mom, for Grandma, your sister-in-law? I got three words for you, my friend. Toshiro, Beifune, Krunek. We've got mineral collections fresh from the tape mines. We've got the last remaining copies of the Flesh Baby EP on vinyl. We've got dwarf lemon trees. We've got literal round tables. We've got mellifluous yops. We've got video, video games, games, people. And for a limited time only, if you spend at least $30, that's $30, <laughs> you will get not only our standard free shipping, but you'll also get a special preview digital download of the debut Try Love compilation album, Can You Feel the Try Love Tonight? Now I know, I know we've been promising this for a long time, but it is finally here. Listen as the Trial of Crew covers tracks from some of our absolute favorite movies. And I don't want to give too much away, but I will say, if you've ever thought to yourself, Self, I don't think Harry can hit the high notes in Frozen's Let It Go. Honey, you've got a big storm coming. You do not want to miss out on this very special sneak peek. This is a culmination of a lot of hard work, and also a very dangerous amount of cocaine. Please, save us from ourselves, and save yourselves from having a stressful time shopping during this holiday season. Where can you find the greatest deals this weekend? Only at the Trilove Shop. And don't delay, because come Monday morning, the head credits for this sale will already be rolling, and there are no post-credit scenes on this bad boy. Log on today, and you'll be saying to yourself, Trilove the smell of savings in the morning. The Trilove Shop. Get in, loser. We're going shopping. Horror movies justify what's happening? Yeah. This movie does not do that. Yeah, certainly no. none of these characters, like, deserve their fate, right? They're all victims of one thing or another, if it's age or if it's, like, the memories of war, et cetera, et cetera. Except for Kung Fu. I won't explain that statement. All right. We don't need any further elaboration on that. Charlie, <laughs> looks like you got something to say. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I was just thinking about, like, the, the in-universe reason for why these girls are being killed by the aunt, right? Okay. Is the that... battle lines are drawn. Aaron, get right. ready. Right, is that like they're unmarried girls, right? And that's why they're going, she's going after them. But then after the scene where you can see Gorgeous look in the mirror and she is the aunt or all of that, I always assumed that was like a possession, you know? Okay. And so then she goes after Ryoko and kills her and burns her at the end. And that's like, oh, she was possessed. But then I was thinking about it and I was like, well, the aunt wouldn't really have any beef with Ryoko because she's a married woman. And Gorgeous hated Ryoko. So didn't she, was she the one who just killed her at the end of the movie? Hmm. That's a take. I really don't know how to parse that. Like, there is, what is the nature of, Ryoko is the, um, the, mo- the mother new, who's marrying. The new mother-in-law. So is, is, and I'm trying to parse this as best I can because, uh, there's like certain aspects of Japanese culture at the time and preceding the time of this movie, uh, that, uh, that I've, only learned the bassist about since watching it uh but that had to do with like a woman's place throughout her life like as a child was to be subservient to the mother and father as a teen is to be or as like a, a young woman is to be subservient to um to the husband and as an old person as a, as an uh, as a senior citizen it's to be subservient to their children is to be like 
let 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 the always like male dominance. So I wonder if it's just that. If it's like that the mother in law, this uh, new new woman, Ryuji Ryuki, Ryu, Ryuko Ryoko Ryoko, is just like making her own way. Uh, like toward a man whom she loves rather than being like set up in an arranged marriage kind of thing. Cause it does touch those themes, um, later on with, uh, or earlier on with, I think it's the gym teacher that they're like, Hey, have a great break. And she's like, Oh, I'm getting married. And she's like, it's an arranged marriage. Like she has to, she has that to deal with. Right. And it's like just uh, later on, you've got auntie who is again, like, supposedly supposed to be subservient to uh to like male authority figures in her life according to like early japanese society um or at least early 1900s japanese society uh that she uh either was not or could not be and is there for sort of in a hell because of it yeah wow that's just me babbling a lot but it's a great point i make a great point you make a great point as far as whether or not the uh, young women in this film deserve their fates I more or less read it as, um, and like contemporary horror, I think to some extent models this as well, but there's like the in-movie logic for why these things are happening. Charlie, as you pointed out, the fact that they're unmarried, um, they may have even used the word virgin at some point. Um, And then beyond that, there's maybe a little deeper down the logic that you can choose to take, which is these are, again, pretty naive children blissfully unaware and unwilling to see the horrors that are in front of them and confronting them for what they are mm-hmm. until the evil forces itself upon this house, uh, upon this group. Um, and the fact that they are reacting to it is sort of the horror movie, quote unquote, logic for them meeting the fate that they end up meeting. Mm-hmm. Does that speak to sort of the question you had then, Charlie? Yeah, I guess it just kind of makes it more about how the aunt is not really haunting these girls specifically because they're unwed and more because they didn't have to suffer the same kind of suffering that she did. Mm. And not only that, but they don't really acknowledge the suffering that she had to go through. Yeah. Especially since it's a World War One type thing. Or two. Two, I meant. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> World War Two type thing. And there's all of that... Um, I don't know if this is actually a real thing, but the crawling into the fridge thing. If you've ever heard that old thing where if there's like a nuclear bomb, you go into a fridge. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Charlie, what a pull. That, have, that is incredible. I've heard that that's a way to survive. And uh, I don't think it's the true. Of the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull taught me this. <laughs> I don't think I don't think it's actually true, but I think it is like a very common like myth and imagery that's used in movies a lot of someone right. getting in a fridge when a bomb's coming. And so... And it plays like the whole movie plays with a little bit of that, right? Like seeing herself in her mother, in her mother to be's uh, wedding dress, uh, mm-hmm. like one of them being trapped in a clock, unable to like deal with the passage of time and like the distance between generations. There's a lot like at play here that we've already mentioned before. Um, and it's interesting that you both bring up like the nation the notion of uh, like how they don't know how to uh, forget, like they can't forget suffering. The older generation can't forget suffering. And like the movie's message, we spoke about this in our last recording, but the movie's message is sort of like, do not forget suffering. And yet like, how do we process that if we don't like just push it from our minds completely? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a podcast I listen to, and I'm going to pull up the name so that I make sure that I'm not getting anything wrong per properly attribute it. Uh, it's called the faculty of horror. Um, it's made by two uh, women in academia who talked about Horror House in a recent episode. Uh, and that was one of their big takeaways from this movie is that like 
deeper than just the general like divide between generations. There is an actual um, uh, story here of like, do not forget the horrors of the past, lest you should forget them and repeat them. But don't like let them become grudges. Don't become anti sicking our house on, you know, five uh, young women with their whole lives ahead of them sort of thing. Um, I don't know. That's that's just a discussion point that I thought I'd bring up and see if anybody has any comment or quote. Was the podcast pretty good? Did you like that one? That episode of that podcast is actually pretty good, yeah. Have you listened to other ones, or is it uh, Actually, that's the, only, for that's the only one that I've specifically listened to about Haosu, except their own. Uh, but it does, like, if I can just, like, plug it for a second, it is, uh, they dive a little bit more into um, uh, the state of, uh, like, the role of women in Japanese society and how it was changing around the time of this movie and how it had been for the, you know, preceding decade or so, and how this is sort of comment on that where there was... Um, like you're you're trying to balance tradition versus progressivism where you're trying to like put priority toward uh, what a woman's role in this society society should be like whether or not we as Americans have a, are in any place to like criticize that or call that out obviously it's like part of a patriarchal society and it's generally poisonous but like who are we to say like how could they live that way it's like i don't know it's like saying how could the amish live without electricity it's like it's a way of life like it's it's a cultural thing right yeah i wonder if um just in regard to you know some of the cultural differences with the the place that this movie has in society uh, you know kind of often thought of as maybe just more of a pulpy movie maybe not given as much credit as it deserves in a lot of those aspects um i think a lot of times it's you know i get when i watch this movie i think there's there's a lot of stuff happening that that is is slightly out of my grasp in a way that's maybe a little upsetting for me okay um and that i think there's probably a lot of cultural context that i wish i maybe could understand um and i think i get things here and there um but the movie is is also working on this more visceral level to where it's kind of easy for me while watching it to just read it at that surface level and not go deeper which is kind of something i think i have to work on um i know i mean like yeah that's what you're doing now right yeah you're talking with your friends and, about and it. the movie works that way too right um but uh, I, this is like a weird comparison, but it's, it's a movie we saw at the trial on. We didn't talk about it, but we saw Good Morning um, at the trial on as well. And that is also a movie that is is confronting a lot of uh, larger societal questions about life in Japanese society, um, but also works on such a great surface level as a comedy. It's just about um, like a petulant child, right? But, I've never actually – I don't think I saw this with y'all. Oh, you didn't see it. Oh, fuck. Cody, you saw it, right? Correct. Yeah, that movie kicks ass. You should see it. I don't. That's another one. Maybe that I don't know how you. I'm sure there's a Criterion release for that. Yeah, I think it's on the channel. Yeah, you should. You should watch that. Um, but I, it's something that I struggle with when watching a lot of foreign films because if it is a movie that appeals to you know uh, my desire to see a funny film or uh, uh, you know an action packed film. It is so easy for me if there is some element of it culturally that I don't understand to just embrace those more immediate elements mm -hmm. um, in a way that I think is is harder for me to do with like an American film where I have an in, you know kind of instinctual understanding of what's happening culturally underneath it. Mm. Um, this is not like a point. This is not a criticism of the movie. It's just something that I kind of think about uh, when watching foreign films a lot. Mm -hmm. And know. it presumably didn't help that this movie, other than being referential towards World War II – didn't seem particularly bound to any given time or place or moment. Um, you know, that doesn't feel good being lost in, you know, time in that way. And especially being when we're stuck in a clock. Yeah. yeah. When we're, mm -hmm. when we're watching and I agree that there is a lot in that movie that was very likely over my head this time around, I more or less just accepted it 
and rolled with it in a way that maybe I didn't the first time and kind of held up my experience. Was that... Yeah. I mean, I think that having a lot of it go over your head or having a lot of it be a surface level understanding, especially the first time you watch it, kind of goes towards what I was saying earlier about like it being like this cult movie where everyone thinks that it's so bad that it's good, but it's actually really good. I just think so much of it is hard to parse. I love the literal roundtable podcast where we saw uh, where we talk about movies that we saw at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, as with previous episodes, this is not one of those. We did not see this at the Trilon Cinema, but we're going to talk about it anyway. I have waited so so long to talk about this movie and gotten so much pushback, uh, but I'm finally glad to be able to talk about this movie. I'll reveal what it is in a second. Woo! Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I am Jason Daphnis. You can follow me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Uh, you can follow our podcast at Trilove Podcast. We just hit 50 followers to our podcast. Uh, and I'm going to let the rest of the team introduce themselves. I'm Cody. Okay, that didn't go so well. So I'm going to let every- I'm going to introduce everybody else. We have a uh, longtime member of the podcast and co-founder Harry Mackin. Thank you. <laughs> Beautiful introduction from Harry. Uh, we have Aaron. Aaron, can, Aaron, Aaron, tr- Aaron. Yeah? Turn around. Look. Yeah? Can, you, can you find the microphone? Hello. Can you can you tell everybody your name, please? Aaron. That that'll do. Thank uh, you. And today we have a very special guest uh, returning from the ether. We have uh, special guest CH four L one three. Please, please give it up. Thank Woo! you for having me. Uh, today's movie, as some of you may have guessed from the uh, uh, title, this is our fourth... I think we're in the 4200s uh, these days. But we've lost a little bit of count. Um, the, uh, some of our internet connection, like, uh, we, have, we have lost our connection to, to the cloud uh, a number of times over the, the course of this podcast. The electrical grid hasn't been on for 300 years. Thank you so much, Aaron, for being with us again. But anyway, today's episode is going to be about Bad Times at the Old Royale, a movie from 2017 directed by Drew Goddard, also director of, I think he did The Martian, uh, and I think he did um, Cabin in the Woods. I loved this movie when it came out. Uh, this was so long ago, guys. And I've been stuck in here for so, so long. This is probably one of the last, like, hundred movies I watched. This is the first in a series of El Royale movies that Goddard ended up putting out across the later 2020s, 2030s. Why didn't you tell me about this? I didn't want to have to watch them with you. Wow. Rude. I I was fighting the goddamn robots. And then uh, you brought one on the planet. (laughs) Harry, that is your sister. Not anymore. The El Royale Hotel faces south. Thank you so much, CH4L13. Don't buildings face all directions? How? Okay. Uh, Cody, you have just been sitting over there stewing, and I don't think I ever got to talk about with you about this movie when it came out, because it was me and Harry who went to see it originally. What do you think? That's right. Thanks for the invite, motherfuck. Uh, I liked... Uh, Bad Royale. Um, Way Shigam is in it. And uh, he's my favorite actor. Shout out to. This is Cody. Would you listen to yourself? Shout out to Way Shigam. Come on the pod. Do you need. uh, Do you need a minute, Cody? Are you okay? I'm Cody. Chris Hemsworth had to lose 25 to 30 pounds of muscle weight immediately after Avengers Affinity War wrapped to star in this film. What? and you never would have thought he just looks so handsome in this movie. He's he still looks built, right? 
That was oh, that was a question for y'all. <laughs> this was of course before Quentin Sanders was fatally destroyed by enemy combatants. All right. Well, uh, the war ended fifty years ago, and I don't Rest know. In peace. We, we need to put this. We need to put this down. Uh, we need to bring this back around to the movie, if we can, please, everybody. Uh, Aaron, have you been listening? Have you been? Are you following? Are you okay, bud? I forgot what we were talking about. We're talking about a movie. Have you seen movies? Do you remember movies? I remember movies. What's the last movie you remember? Casablanca. Er, er, Aaron, sorry, you were born in 1993. What? <laughs> what? I can't hear you. I can't hear anything anymore. I can't remember. Um, Jason, maybe you can help me out. Was this the fifth uh, Fast and Furious movie, or was, is it sixth? There's uh, a number of um, tropes and uh, sort of, what's the term I'm looking for? Sort of uh, uh, stand-in characters, archetypes that uh, exist in this movie. Um, John Hamm, of course, is sort of like the sturdy company man, government agent, whose uh, intentions John aren't Hamm quite... John Hamm was in Mad Men. Yes, he was. It's good that you remember. Do you remember seeing him in Bad Times at the El Royale? What? Uh, he is. He, he's one of the shadier characters, and unfortunately meets his end rather early in the film, less than halfway through. Uh, really, I, I should get to the. Is this a spoiler cast? This has been a spoiler cast. We've been doing this for 158 years. Of course, this is a spoiler cast. John Hamm you, was in Mad Men. Matthew McConaughey was considered for the role of Billy Lee. That can you imagine how the movie would have changed if if Matthew McConaughey had been in this movie instead of John Hamm? Uh. McConaughey and other other casualty in the awakening of the Rest in peace, Freddy. Matthew McConaughey was in Mad Men. It's a shotgun blast of like bizarre imagery and sound, yeah. right? Like, uh. That's part of why I liked listening to this podcast so much, um, uh, Faculty of Horror, and not to just keep plugging it, but, like, they do, without getting way too deep into, like, the rhetorical analysis of it, like we have tried to, they touch on a lot of, like, the cultural touchstones uh, for it, um, with, like, the how cats are perceived uh, as, like, objects of, sometimes they're objects of mischief, sometimes they're majestic mythical creatures, sometimes they're shapeshifters, and how that's used in this movie, Um the purpose of architecture in uh, Japanese society and more like homesteading and how that's played against in this movie. There's a lot that like you would not, again, as an American film goer, realize is going on in this movie. First watch. Where does Blanche rank amongst cinematic felines? Oh, OK. Um, what are we considering? What else are we going to see? We've got uh, Garfield from the live action Garfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little better than fucking live action Garfield. I'm, I'm just putting him on the list. I'm just throwing him in the bucket. I'm not, strat- I'm not stratifying yet. We've got Garfield. We've got uh, what's the cast name from Alien? Jones. Jones. Is it Jones. Jonesy. Jonesy. It's Jonesy. Who was that? Did anybody else hear something, or was that just the wind? No, it was it was Jonesy. Jonesy. Yeah. Oh, Jonesy, the cat. I believe it's the Jones cat. for short, so you're technically correct. We've got Thank you. Garfield, Aaron. we've got Jonesy, we've got Blanche, other cats. Uh, any of the cats that have played Salem over the years. True, true. Very good uh, cats. Salem of... Um, Sabrina. Sabrina the Teenage yeah. Witch. Uh, cat from uh, Pet Cemetery. Cat from uh, Homeward Bound. Sassy is the name of that cat. Wow. I remember that. The dogs are named Shadow and Chance. Okay. 
sassy. But this isn't about the dogs. Okay, so let's just keep keep our list to that seven. Unless there's another. Is there another on the tip of your tongue? Uh, there was a cat in uh, Hocus Pocus, but it was a non-sensational cat. It's a talking cat. The whole character is a cat. Uh, Falcor from NeverEnding Stories kind of cat-like. You're a fucking dipshit. But, but anyway, what's, what's so great about Blanche, like. the cat, is all the cat imagery is that it, like... It looks so childish. It like looks like a kid drew a cat, mm-hmm. and then a kid drew a scarier cat. You know, <laughs> like it, and that's great because they pulled so much from just like what kids are afraid of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we talked a lot about on our last episode about how uh, this movie was made and how a lot of the screenplay was, and imagery was influenced by Nobuhiko Ebayashi's daughter's drawings mm-hmm. of like her dreams and scary things. What I've always loved about the uh, that like I, the iconic cat that's on all the shirts and stuff is it's got. In every respect except the eyes, it's just kind of like a human face. It's got like human lips, weirdly, on a cat. It looks weirdly, like almost seductive. I think I might be a furry, but it's got like sorry, hu- very human features on it. Uh, and it really like about goes toward, it, it really like builds that uh, absurdity fine. into the, into the, into the, the imagery. Thing you just said a second ago. And the cat, like itself, the physical cat is only on screen. Do a like, 180, just turn back to the thing that was. Then dis- like, uh, portrayals of the cat about are, the right? Cat. You have something you'd like to say about the cat? This discussion turned into a catastrophe. <laughs> You're out of. Are we ready to keep talking about this movie? Are we? Are we? Are we done? Are we wrapping up? I had something. I think it's gone now, though. I don't know. No, you gotta join. Um, this is maybe a little heavy, but uh, uh, Harry and I are, are taking uh, uh, Japanese class. Shout out to Harry. He should come on the pod sometime. Um, but Konnichiwa, uh, Steven Spielberg does. Uh, yes, that is a good video. Thank um, you. But. We, I showed up early to do like a makeup lesson because I had to miss half of a class uh, with a Japanese teacher. A makeup lesson? You're learning how to do makeup? Okay, so I showed up. Maybe you can uh, paint some lips early. on a cat. Okay, the talking over. That's my a cat catastrophe. Uh, so I showed up 30 minutes early, and um, she just we were doing like a lesson. She was giving me some of the vocab and stuff that I'd missed from the last week, um, and she just started like asking me about my job, and she started explaining some of like her family stuff and her life and her kids and all that. And one thing she eventually got to was like learning a language is like like the final step is like really understanding not just like the <clears throat> grammar or like the um, like the nouns or like the words or how to construct a sentence, but understanding what is like beyond the language, like the philosophical way that you can have conversations that is so much more than just how to construct sentences, but like why those sentences are constructed that way. And also like what the context is culturally behind why people say certain things. You mean like the, the spirit behind the conversation itself and the context rather than like the content. Yeah. She had, she had talked specifically about somebody who had, had um, grown up in Japan and like learned a lot of Japanese language and then moved to the United States and hadn't spoken Japanese in, like, several years. And she had said, like, it's, like, very hard to talk to him uh, about or in Japanese because he, like, he knows the language, but he doesn't, like, know, like, how to have, like, philosophical, like, really the kind of deep conversations that I might have with a friend, like, over a few drinks, right? Like, there's such a barrier. It's such, like, a learning, uh, like, thing. You know, you have to spend years and years and years doing it. And it's, like, going back to my point about how hard it is to watch foreign films sometimes, it's, like, man, people, like, really dive into this stuff for, like, years and years to understand the context behind it. And uh, it's, it's frustrating. Does anybody else feel that way? Is that just me? A little uh, bit. It, it, with respect to, specifically to this movie? 
just I, I maybe just in general, like I don't know, like life is fairly short, and I could spend the rest of my life just watching Japanese films from the eighties and probably not watch most of them. Uh, is this like existential? Am I going too deep here? Yeah, I think you might be going okay, a little. Well, a little all right. Far. Well, I was thinking about that. So, well, uh, I think then that that might be our episode. Uh, All recorded media has to contend with a phenomenon known as the signal-to-noise ratio. In recording, the intended audio you're meant to hear and interpret is known as the signal, while everything else the recording picks up that you're not meant to hear is known as the noise. The recording noise could be nearly anything not meant to be picked up, from microphone feedback to bumping elbows to burps to sips of coffee, or it could be something else entirely. Generally, the noise is thought to disrupt and interfere with the transmission and interpretation of the signal. But of course, such a judgment is largely a matter of perception. The next time you're listening to an audio recording, try listening for the noise as much as you might usually listen for the signal. Somewhere in the waves of noise emanated from your speakers, or in the long process of filtration that brought those waves of noise to you, you might start to interpret a new kind of signal. A kind of ghost signal you could only receive at the other side of a copy of a copy of an interpretation. Listen closely, and you never know what you might hear. The signal you may begin to tune into may not be so different from what you've just heard tonight on the Trilove Podcast. <laughs>